0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Mexico has a new Consul General in Chicago. She's the first woman to serve in the post. Reina Torres-Mendeville has previously been Consul General in San Antonio. She comes to Chicago at a time of heightened tensions between the U.S. and Mexico. The Trump administration has threatened ice raids in major cities like Chicago as part of an effort to persuade Congress for new asylum regulations. Welcome to Chicago. Thanks for joining us, Ambassador.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, I've been in the diplomatic corps of Mexico since I left college, so it's been a while—almost thirty years. I'm not going to say my age, but I think that you can calculate after that. You've had lots
0: of posts in the United States and, like, in the Czech Republic and places.
1: Yes, that's correct. Mainly, my career has been focused in the U.S. I was posted to our embassy in Washington, D.C., for six years, and then I've been consul in Fresno, California, San Antonio, Texas, and now here in Chicago.
0: Now, one of your previous positions was General Director for Protection of Mexicans Abroad. That's correct. What does that mean?
1: From that office, we oversaw the operation of all our consulates in the world, including the consular sections in the embassies. So it is really interesting if a Mexican got in trouble or um, needs some aid in, let's say, uh, someplace in Africa or Europe, or there is an accident or a natural disaster like earthquakes and that sort of thing, um, that office coordinates the help that we provide to our citizens
0: abroad. Well, how much of that is based in the U.S. and protecting Mexican nationals? In it's
1: the 90% US? of the operation, but let me tell you what the difference is. Uh, we have a consulate network in the U.S. of 50 consulates, it's the largest consulate network that any country has on another. So the machinery works pretty well. We have the personnel. We are able to respond quickly when there is an emergency, let's say a hurricane, or you know threats of uh, raids or any other thing. Uh, but the challenge is in some other parts of the world. Uh, when there is just an embassy and perhaps it's not located in the country where the disaster occurred, like an earthquake in Nepal, for example.
0: How much support can the government give to people in these situations? What can you do for them?
1: We provide support, even financial support, in case uh, of emergency. Recently, during Hurricane Harvey that affected Texas and the coast of Texas, we went through the coastal area looking for Mexicans that could not go to the shelters because of the immigration situation. They were afraid to go to government shelters to avoid precisely uh, face some immigration authorities. So they stayed in their cars or they stayed with relatives. So we went, we organized brigades, and we went through the entire coast to look for them. And provide them with some help. And uh, we provide also legal aid. We partner with several organizations to help the community get the information that they may need to go through an immigration process or, you know, when they are uh, victims of domestic violence or they have issues with custody of minors. So that's the kind of help we provide.
0: You know, I've been reading a lot about what the Lopez Obrador government is doing in Mexico, and it's cutting budgets across the board. Is that affecting the services you can provide to Mexican nationals in this country? Well, that's a big challenge. In the
1: consular network, we're used to work in times where we have some extra resources for Mexico and perhaps we're able to provide legal aid in a more extended manner. But we're also used to times where we have to be really rational with the use of resources. So the key now is to strengthen our partnerships and look for new ones. There is no one institution that can resolve these things or address these things by its own. We need partners and we find incredible counterparts in the U.S. Several organizations, the churches, not only the Catholic Church, but other religious institutions. So we have worked with them. We're used to do that, and we will continue strengthening those ties.
0: I wonder if we could explain a little what happens with Mexican nationals who are having immigration issues when something like an ICE raid happens. What is the consular role in a situation? If ICE goes into a place, finds a bunch of Mexican nationals, um, what happens?
1: We go with our nationals, with our citizens through the entire process from the very beginning to prevent, to provide them with information. For example, just last Saturday, we had a workshop in the consulate to provide them with information what would happen if you are in your car and you get stopped in the highway or what happened if your eyes knocks your
0: home. Do people have to request a consular contact? They
1: have the right to do that. But the, if they
0: don't they might miss out on your help altogether.
1: That's correct. So that's why we have to tell them that they are allowed to call the consulate if they require assistance. But that's something that um, the law enforcement authorities don't have the mandate to call us unless the citizens actually
0: ask for the consular help. And if they need legal representation, what do you do?
1: So I go back to what I was saying. So we provide them with information before, after the incident, if there is an incident in which, you know, they get involved with law enforcement, we make sure that they are not discriminated because they are immigrants or they are undocumented or because of their nationality. We make sure that they have All the legal resources that are available to them, in difficult cases, in cases of gross violations of human rights, we provide them with the attorneys to represent them. So
0: sometimes you refer people to organizations that they can get pro bono help with. That's correct. The dominant. uh, And some other times
1: we get the bills from the attorneys. We have. Partnerships. We have a program of legal representation. We get the resources from Mexico. Mexican Congress approves them. So uh, we have some limited, but still, we have good resources to provide with the legal advice of a, of an expert. What would be a kind
0: of case where you would hire somebody?
1: For example, in case of uh, labor discrimination, you know, where they they are not paid their fees and they are mistreated by the employer. Or they have an injury, you know, and, and you know, the uh, employer do not want to pay. But, for example, in cases of domestic violence or abuse or human trafficking, or when somebody is a victim of excessive use of force by a law enforcement officer, those are the cases in which we intervene.
0: What about if people are getting transferred out of the country, repatriated? Can you describe your role in that process?
1: That's another part of the process, as I said. We go all the way from providing them information before anything happens all the way to making sure that they have the appropriate contacts in Mexico if they are to be returned to Mexico. And
0: this would happen pretty fast, right? I mean, the U.S. Uh, would repatriate someone within a couple weeks or something? That's
1: correct. But if we focus on cases where the people have some sort of vulnerability, for example, illnesses or disability, when it's a senior, when it's someone that requires medical attention when they are in Mexico. We make sure that they... Don't move that person unless we have already contacted the proper health authorities in Mexico to be in charge and to make sure that they will be there providing the service once they are in Mexican territory.
0: Once again, does the person have to alert you and call you to get that service if they're elderly or something? Otherwise, they can slip through this thing without seeing. We go
1: to detention centers. I mean, part of our team makes visits every week to the different detention centers to make sure that we are able to detect those cases. But uh, there are some cases in which we are not there for some reason, so they have the right to call us, that's for sure, and we have... Make sure that they have the telephone numbers available, that there is visible signs where they can see how to contact us. The thing is that according to the international regulations, the law enforcement authorities are not mandated to call us as a practice unless the citizens or the persons request the intervention of the consulate.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm talking with the new consul general from Mexico in Chicago. She's Reina Torres-Mendeville, and uh, we're talking about what happens with a Mexican national who is being repatriated. Well, how big of a onus is there on the city to coordinate with the consulate of Mexico? Um, right now, we're seeing... Um, You know, Lori Lightfoot, she's talking about being supportive of Mexican nationals who don't uh, have papers and cutting off the gang database and things of that nature. But is there a level of coordination that cities do or should have with the Mexican consulate? Absolutely,
1: the city governments are a great partner for the consulates, and Mayor Lightfoot has been incredible in making it really clear, precisely after this threat of massive deportations, that the city was not going to cooperate to be part of that operation. So we certainly appreciate that. I just met recently with the um, community engagement officer that serves with uh, Mayor Lightfoot, and there are many things that we can do together, not only inform the community about these kind of issues and you know how they can access services from the consulate but also how to strengthen and empower the communities. How do we make sure that there's communication between the different uh, underserved areas of the city where we can send perhaps some experts to uh, teach them about civic engagement or how to become citizens when they are legible or how to provide scholarships for the kids, etc., etc. We have an area within the consulate that provides information on health, another one on financial education, and another one... Uh, on education in general, how to get better education opportunities for their kids.
0: How do you address something like fear among the Mexican national community? Because right now, there's a lot of people outside the city and the suburbs and the collar counties. And uh, they're basically just afraid. And there's a lot of fear about deportations. Is there something that the Mexican consulate can do about that?
1: Absolutely. Two things. I think information is the best remedy against misinformation and uncertainty and this kind of psychological threat that the community feels. How do I react? What do I do? Once you know that, you can feel better. Which kind of resources or services can I get from the consulate before anything happens? Like making sure that my kids are already registered as Mexicans before I have to be back to Mexico with them and without any papers for them. So that's one thing, information. And the other one is uh, we know that they perhaps are afraid to come to the city uh, to get the services. So we go where they are. We bring our services in our mobile operations to different servers and communities. We cover part of Indiana. So we have also presence over there to make sure that they have access to these resources, even if they cannot come to our uh, facilities here in Chicago.
0: I imagine one of the big fears that uh, Mexican nationals have is just losing everything. I mean, just in the process of repatriation or other things, is that a constant problem?
1: That's correct. It's not only their belongings, uh, their tools, perhaps, when they have a, a job in landscaping or, you know, any kind of job. But what is more important for them is what's going to happen with my kids, many of them American citizens. Who is going to take care of them? If I'm brought back to Mexico, I want to make sure that my cousin or my sister or my mother is in charge of the case and they don't have to go back with me. So we can also make sure with the proper advice from experts how to do the paperwork to be presented before social services once we
0: have a case like this. You know, Mexico itself is deporting a lot of people from Central America right now and in greater numbers. And Lopez Obrador came into office saying he was going to be a little more sympathetic, but then Over the last two months, the administration deported 67 percent more migrants than its predecessor did uh, during the same period in 2018. Does that make your job harder in the U.S. to argue that uh, we want humane treatment for our people? We have the moral authority to say, you know, our people have rights. If Mexico is deporting just like the U.S. is deporting, does that make your job harder?
1: I think it was just yesterday, or the day before yesterday, he presented the new members of the National Guard who are in charge of security. That's a new institution that uh, he created in this administration to be in charge of security. And one of the elements that he emphasized the most was the training that they are having on human rights. And he mentioned that he was going to make sure that anybody that trespasses that code or those protocols are going to be um, properly sanctioned. So that's an encouraging element. But the other thing that he has mentioned, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs has mentioned several times, is that Mexico is betting now for the uh, long-term solution for this issue. Uh, We have been for decades not only Mexico and the US but also regionally talking about immigration and immigration flaws. And we haven't done anything so far, because not all of us are in agreement that this is a multifaceted issue, that there is no one solution. The solution cannot be only contention or law enforcement. It has to go to the root of development. And our foreign minister has been very active talking to Germany, to Spain, to Japan to get investment to the southern part of Mexico and Central America. And in the long term, that is going to make a difference in what we have seen in recent years in uh, the flows in the region.
0: You know, in the United States, we've had this long immigration debate and conversation about how to reform immigration and not done anything. And the people, Mexican nationals and Central American uh, people, they all end up being the political football of our debate. The last round of ICE raids was about, uh, in President Trump's mind, reforming asylum laws. And we're all just kind of floating along here while while people are being used as a football.
1: It's really frustrating. And I, I perfectly understand what you're saying. We've been closed many times. And we have partnered our embassies doing an amazing job getting in touch with the members of the Senate, of Congress, to talk about this issue. What would be ideal is for all of us to just think common sense. What is rational in economic terms? What is rational in human terms? And when we get rid of all the politicization of the issue, I think we would be able to think of a good solution for immigration.
0: There's been so much controversy about the way the U.S. is detaining people, many of them from Central America. Um, We've got a photo here that has uh, galvanized people's uh, thinking about who is getting hurt here. And uh, do you have some thoughts about what we should keep in mind here?
1: Well, that's an absolute tragedy. That's something that no family should go through. Uh, that's something that should not be happening anywhere in the world. For sure, that is a red flag that will make us, should make us, all of us, engage in this issue, reflect on what's a rational solution to stop that from happening again. Uh, from the standpoint of the Mexican government, what we have been doing is working with our counterparts in Central America. In fact, we have a mechanism, whatever there is consulates from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, and Mexico, we coordinate actions and we get together to make a our services more efficient, to go and talk to the local authorities. So we are mandated to do that from already some years. And the thing is, as I mentioned before, this is not something that could be addressed unilaterally. We have to work regionally. And for sure, not only from a human point of view, but also from the responsibility of the governments, we should not see those sins repeat anymore.
0: What do you think about what might happen, uh, you know, in a couple weeks? I mean, if there's big ICE raids, do you have the capacity? How do you deal with that?
1: We all were um, alerted. As I mentioned, we have a network of 50 consulates. And the other response to that was this uh, national Know Your Rights workshops that we organized in the 50 consulates. So that is what we are doing to make sure that people know how to react. And of course, we are in touch with our counterparts in the DHS, not only nationally, but in the different local or regional offices, to make sure that we have consular access as mandated by the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations, so that we are alerted
0: when, when these operations happen. Ambassador Reina Torres Mandeville is the new Council General here in Chicago, and she was previously posted in San Antonio. And thanks for joining us and talking about what's happening between the U.S. and Mexico.
1: Thank you so much for coming here.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll catch up on the latest from the protests in Sudan and Hong Kong. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. A month ago, Sudan's security forces killed 120 demonstrators and broke up a key protest camp. It looked like the end for a people power movement that started in December and ended the reign of Omar al-Bashir in April. But protests on Sunday in Khartoum and other cities showed that people were still willing to show up in the streets and call for the military to step down. Eleven protesters were killed. Two opposition leaders were arrested today. There are more plans for street protests in Sudan. With me now is Amal Hassan Fadlala, and she is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan. She's author of a recent book on Sudan, Branding Humanity, Competing Narratives of Rights, Violence, and Global Citizenship. Thanks a lot for joining us, Amal.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You're talking about what's happening now as a third wave of protests. What what can we expect in this third wave?
2: Uh well, uh, you know, um from what I am observing right now, um, you know, there is like this um confrontation between the military council and between the leaders of the protest um who are responding of course to the demands of the people who are marching in the streets. And it seems to me, um, from what happened Sunday is that uh people are really adamant uh, that you know um the the revolution should not be stolen uh, and uh, and that the the protesters are still represent a very strong force that uh, the sudan rural, rulers have to reckon with so um uh, there is a, you know a process of negotiation that is going on and people are putting a lot of hope into that but uh, still you know we're not getting Uh, clear information on uh, is there a deadline um, uh, that is, you know, that we need to to know about um, to to see what the results are going uh, to be and of course you know there is also a sense of mistrust between the two parties uh, that's why the leaders of the protest are uh, you know still kind of organizing and mobilizing and there are schedules uh, of protests that are uh, I saw one today that people should not stop mobilizing, still uh, occupy the streets, still uh, protest, and make your your you know your demands very clear.
0: Is uh, are the demands though kind of um, too tough for a negotiation? I mean, if the military has to stand down and it doesn't want to, there's not going to be a negotiation.
2: You know they, yeah. I mean, before the massacre that happened in June third, the the negotiation kind of reached a dead end because there was um, a a problem of how to form the um, you know the Supreme Council. But now, you know, with the African Union and the Ethiopian uh, negotiators, um, you know, kind of uh, getting in. there is. It seems to me there is a possibility that you know the, this um, you know debate over the Supreme Council can be resolved. You know by having you know uh, seven um, you know uh, people from the opposition and some uh, seven people from the military, and then they will vote on uh, a neutral uh, person to be the, the you know uh, number fifteen person. So we'll see.
0: You know, what are the lessons from the Arab Spring that are fueling the ideas behind both sides? Because I noticed the protesters were um, citing the Arab Spring a lot. And so are the, the military, um, and they're getting supported by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. They're, they're the people who were against the, the uh, Arab Spring uprisings. Uh, this thing resonates in a, in a, in a strange way here.
2: Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, there is a lot of uh, intervention. Um, and, um, yeah, but th- but the protesters, I think they are learning from what happened um, uh, in, in the Arab Spring in terms of, like, you know, we're still going to be in the streets until we see, um, you know, uh, our demands being met. Uh, that means we've learned from what happened to the Arab Spring. But again, you know, as you're saying, you know, there is, you know, this kind of... Uh, Political uh, intervention from uh, Emirates and from Saudi Arabia, but what I heard now, um, you know, there was a meeting in Berlin um, that also included Egypt, uh, United Arab Emirates, and and Saudi Arabia, and they, uh, you know, the 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 main point of that is not to intervene in terms of supporting, um, you know, the the you know military council, so that at least, you know. Um, a solution will be reached. Um, so, this is what um, what I'm observing right now.
0: Do you think that the Sudanese diaspora is doing um, enough here? Are they supporting uh, the protesters and, and getting out there?
2: Yes, um, uh, the diaspora is very visible right now. Uh, I mean, throughout since December. Um, there have been protests in London. Uh, there have been protests in Washington D.C. A, a massive demonstration in Washington D.C. actually uh, took place uh, to support protesters there. There is also like a solidarity groups that are sending, you know, money that are helping, um, you know, in different means. I know that uh, doctors in uh, in Flint, for instance, uh, are organizing and um, you know offering medical support for for uh for people there. So um the diaspora is really a, a big force now and um I think they also kind of organized um on Sunday in different parts of uh, of the United States and in Washington DC and in Europe as well.
0: You know, it's interesting Sudan is a place that has always had military rule. Um why are people fed up with it now? Why why are people really um going going after it and and you know facing death in the streets to to get the military out of power uh
2: well you know the history of Sudan is very interesting in that yes uh for almost fifty two years you know uh the military have you know ruled um the country, but also they were um like short democratic uh periods, so they were you know, big um, revolution in 64 that toppled the first dictator in Sudan. Then there is a revolution in 1985, which also toppled Jafar Numeri, who ruled for 16 years. Um, uh, But this, uh, Bashir's rule was the longest. Um, And um, I think, uh, you know, these protesters who are also very young and, and they are, the generation that grew under Bashir regime, so uh, they saw a lot. They saw um, what happened in South Sudan. They saw their country split into two. They saw what happened in Darfur. Um, but you know, wh- the the fact is that you know, the 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 problems of Sudan have always been dealt with in fragments. So you know, South Sudan was dealt. Ways in uh, as a separate issue, Darfur too. So now this protest is doing the opposite. They're saying, no, we need um, a united Sudan. You know, the problem of Sudan cannot be solved in fragments. Now it's time to talk about citizenship rights within a a democratic Sudan, a united democratic Sudan. Uh, So, um, you know, they are calling for unity by saying, for instance, we're all Darfur. Um, uh, We want uh, a, a very good relationship with South Sudan, that kind of you know, uh, pay attention to the history, the shared history between the south and the north. So I think it's a very interesting protest in that it's kind of reflecting on the past history of Sudan, but also kind of projecting uh, for a better future. Uh, So um, I, you know, it's hopeful. It's, It's giving a lot of people a lot of hope, but we'll see.
0: I'm talking with Amal Hassan Fadlala. She's from the University of Michigan and author of a recent book on Sudan, Branding Humanity. And we're talking about the protests that have been happening since December in Sudan. And uh, over the weekend, they kicked up again on Sunday and showed that people still wanted the military out of power in Sudan. Um, Can you say something about the role the U.S. is playing right now? Because the U.S. is a long— history of involvement in Sudan, uh, what is the U.S. saying about these protests?
2: Well, to tell you the truth, it's a very positive role right now. I mean, uh, the U.S. Um, sent um, uh, Tibor Nagy, who's Assistant Secretary of State uh, for African Affairs. They also have um, a special envoy for Sudan, uh, Donald Booth, uh, who worked under Obama, and he knows Sudan very well. And the the message um, you know from the U.S. is very positive right now that we support a peaceful transfer of power, um, um, a democratic transformation, um, or and uh, a civilian a civilian rule. So uh, and the same kind of messages are also coming from the European Union. They are coming from um, uh, the African Union. Um, so. Um, these are very positive responses uh, worldwide um, so um, we're hoping that you know the, you know these uh, international forces would pressure the two parties um you know the opposition and the military council to reach uh, a favorable agreement uh, an agreement that would not hurt the the feeling of the people who have been protesting for almost uh I don't know, like seven months now, I mean, since December. So it's a long time. And um, now the whole world is watching. So that's a good thing.
0: What kind of agreement can the military sign on to at this point? Uh, Some of the things they were proposing was, you know, really uh, elections long in, you know, two years in the future and things like that. Is that, uh, is their resignation basically the only thing that the opposition can accept now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, the 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 composition of of the Supreme Council was one of the main issues that the two kind of uh, stumble on, and now you know because the military uh, have bought time during all this uh, period, so they're mobilizing. You know the um, what you can say the remnants of the old regime and also new. Uh, new players um, uh, in in, in, uh, Sudanese politics. Uh, So they're saying, well, you know, we agreed, for instance, um, to give you 67% in the legislative uh, council. Now we need, um, you know, uh, to lower that. So give us more. So, you know, for me, it seems like, you know, by these kind of lengthy negotiations, the military might also be using this as a tactic to gain more time to establish its own, its own self um, um, uh, and to, uh, you know, claim uh, or to grab power. So this is also something that we might see. But the hope is that with all the international pressures, with all the, um, you know, the people who are protesting in the street, you know, you cannot overlook uh, these um, these force
0: uh, forceful um, uh, you know uh, parties uh, the security forces in Sudan are um, interesting, and there's this section of the security forces that um, was involved in Darfur that is led by a man uh, mr Himedidi and uh, what what do you have to say about their role in the way the military is going right now? Because it seems like these guys are um, like a militia onto themselves. They were responsible for a lot of the violence. Uh, are they the decision makers that um, no negotiation can reach?
2: Yes. I mean, this is a very good question because it has been, um, and it gained a lot of debate Um Uh, from both, um, you know, protesters and and the military, (laughs) uh, the military itself, because, you know, the military used to be like, you know, this one institution that people know. Here is the military, the, you know, the the force that all Sudanese uh, people know. But now uh, it seems like there are, five militaries in Sudan, um, uh, if we also include, you know, um, um, rebels who are fighting in Blue Nile, in Darfur, in um, in Nuba Mountains, and uh, this militia that used to fight um, Bashir's war in Darfur. Uh, so their role kind of, um, you know, uh, weakened in 2008 in Darfur, but then uh, the military incorporated them as uh, a force uh, as a new force and now we see it coming very very forceful and playing a very important role in in uh, in the scene and uh, after the crack uh, down on protesters um you know the militia um, kind of spread in um in the streets of Khartoum and people were just so scared that this is not the what they are used to now you have a, a, a militia under one person, and it, it's, it's scary. Uh, it's really scary what's going to happen, um, especially because of the of the massacre and what happened. You know um, that peaceful demonstrators were uh, just you know surprised at night and were killed and their bodies dumped in the Nile. So that was something that is people cannot get. Over it yet? Um, people are still mourning. They're still shocked, and uh, there is a sense of fear. But it really amazed me how people kind of overlook uh, overcome uh, this sense of fear and came to the streets on on Sunday.
0: Amal Hassan Fadlala is associate professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. She's author of the recent book on Sudan branding humanity. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the protest movement as it evolves in Sudan.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The protests in Hong Kong took a turn yesterday with the storming of the Legislative Council. We'll talk about what's happening in Hong Kong after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, a group of Hong Kong protesters stormed Hong Kong's legislature. They oppose a law that would allow for the city's authorities to extradite people accused of crimes to mainland China for prosecution. While Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, said she'd withdraw the extradition law indefinitely, activists want her to resign over police brutality at the protests. Let's talk now with Ting Goa, and she's with the Department of Gender Studies and History at the University of Hong Kong, and she's been involved in free speech issues there recently. Thanks for joining us, Ting Goa.
3: Yeah, sure. It's my pleasure.
0: You know, China, the Chinese government came out with a very strong statement, and said that the act yesterday of storming the hong kong legislature was totally intolerable did something change yesterday did the did the game change
3: yeah uh, i think the event yesterday escalated the strategy from previous protests and marches Uh, And also the response from the government was strange. That that changed as well because the kind of face-off between the the students or the protesters and the police and protesters condemning the police use of violence. But yesterday when the students kind of stormed the Legislative Council, we don't see any police on site. The whole site was left empty and just allowed the protesters to go in. And then that was kind of a strange move as well from the government's side so uh the game if we talked about the game change yesterday definitely that there's some changes from both sides
0: yeah uh, and uh, what what about the way the event is being depicted because a lot of people look in and say oh there was real vandalism and damage and uh this is this is awful and other people uh you know i saw things in people's Twitter feeds where the protesters were paying yeah. for their own soda pop and stuff while they were in the legislature. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, uh, it was all seemed very innocent. I, I don't know how to digest all that.
3: Yeah. What became really clear was not the violence, actually. That was maybe an exaggeration of the event. What I... See so really it was the frustration of the protesters, especially the younger generation. So we really need to ask ourselves, Okay, will push these students to go this far, what was behind what was behind that? what was the actual structural violence and political violence that pushed students to go this far? I think that that's the re- really the real issue here.
0: How do you answer that question?
3: We can even relate that to the protest a few years ago, the the umbrella movement, students or the protesters, that request uh, is not being directly addressed, uh, answered by the government official, especially the chief executive, uh, uh, Ms. Carrie Lam. And yesterday at the celebrations of the handover, she said that she would be happy to sit with the students to answer their questions. But really if she could just go outside and talk to students waiting for her to answer them.
0: Now, is part of the problem that the young people in the streets, I mean, they don't just want to see a suspension of this uh, legislation. They want to see it uh, yeah. rejected. They,
3: just... Yeah, withdrawal, total withdrawal, definitely, definitely. Yeah, because the uh, thing there several requests put together to withdraw the the bill completely, and also to release all the protesters taken away, even from the hospital. And then police officers who used rubber bullets and all the violence against the protesters need to be investigated and uh, even need to apologize to the the citizens. And also because we already have three protesters died from this year's protests, so the citizens are now also demanding an official apology from the government.
0: Is Carrie Lam the person who can execute that kind of accountability right now? It seems like she's on the defensive and just doesn't want to w- yeah. withdraw the law. So, I mean, is, yeah. is Carrie Lam's leadership a problem to moving forward? I mean, a lot of people are calling for a resignation. Is that the is yeah, that the
3: definitely issue? That, that's a part of the yeah, that's part of the request as well. Yeah, uh, Carrie Lam's uh, resignation at the press conference a couple of weeks ago when she was asked why. she... She wouldn't respond to the request of resigning from her uh, f- from her role, and she said she would like a second chance <laughs> from the citizens. And if we're really seeing the application of uh, one country, two systems, and yes, Carrie Lam should be able to, as the chief executive of Hong Kong, she should be able to be, hold, be held accountable for all of that, including uh, withdrawing the, the bill completely. But we know what's holding her back. And we know that her role as chief executive is very complicated with the pressure from Beijing. and that also partly is why people are doubting whether one country to two systems uh, is really a kind of, in effect, a workable solution to Hong Kong's political future.
0: I'm talking with Ting Goa. She's with the Department of Gender Studies and History at the University of Hong Kong. And we're talking about the protests in Hong Kong yesterday. A section of the protesters stormed the Hong Kong legislature and did graffiti and uh things of that nature uh what do you think the chinese government is thinking right now uh, how do they get out of this there's a lot of people who are uh talking about you know them inserting themselves into hong kong and if one china two systems system doesn't work uh the chinese government probably has some ideas about what can make it work and they're not really great ones
3: yeah, I you know I wish I knew what what's on their mind. We we all wish we could know what's really on 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 their mind. Judging from the response from the Chinese government from Beijing from the Umbrella Movement, is that the the Beijing government at the time they didn't really respond to what what happened in Hong Kong, and this time I doubt the Beijing will directly respond to anything here. And if we look at the editorial from either People's Daily or Global Times or the mouthpieces of the Chinese government, we know that it's a riot or these protests that are kind of making a chaotic thing of Hong Kong. And that's kind of what the Chinese government is painting, the whole political requests of the people of Hong Kong here.
0: One of the things I've been reading that is interesting is a public opinion survey from Hong Kong University that talked about uh, the record yeah. low number of people who identify as a Chinese yes. citizen yeah. and yeah. more people identify as Hong Kongers. At Hong Kong, yes, yes, uh, yeah. And that's uh, that having that strong sense of identity um, you know, kind of sets people up for... Uh, more of a conflictual relationship with China. Yeah,
3: absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And um, that's one of the very sad consequences from the government's political moves Uh, because the Chinese government is pushing a very hardcore patriotic education, uh, political uh, pressure, imposing that on, on Hong Kong. And, of course, people would respond very strongly that they don't want that especially from Umbrella Movement and from this year's protests, and, and very clearly and people identify themselves more increasingly as Hong Konger and this very clear Hong Kong identity. Because in the past, even for most liberals in Hong Kong, having this Hong Konger identity wasn't really part of kind of the mindset of earlier liberals in Hong Kong. But increasingly, especially with the younger generation, uh, to say that they are, that it's a really unwillingness unwilling, really to say that they are they are Chinese, they'd rather be involved as a Hong Konger, um, very much to do with the political situation here. And this is something the government should be uh, addressing and, and should be responding to. And if the people in Hong Kong would like to have their voices heard, what, like, do they need uh, allies and they need to understand and to be understood uh, better by the mainlanders and by the larger world. But unfortunately, because of the political pressure imposed on Hong Kong, so people are really having this Hong Kong identity and uh, the government, both from kind of top down and from bottom up, uh, there's kind of increasingly in willingness to have dialogue uh, or have the kind of understanding from hong kong uh to mainland or between, between mainland china and hong kong
0: would it be fair to say that the umbrella movement uh was uh it was a pro democracy movement it had a sense of optimism about it but the the current protest movement is Turning into something that has a real sense of worry about it. The uh, I noticed that one of the things that was scrawled uh, outside the legislature yesterday was, uh, "If we burn, you burn with us."
3: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That that sentiment is quite worrying. But. Um, uh on many levels, it also carries the same spirit as the umbrella movement. And also, uh, the uh, most participants of the umbrella movement are younger students, but this time, uh, c- citizens of all age groups, of all backgrounds. Really, kind of, we see there's more solidarity this time compared to the, the umbrella movement. There was an article yesterday from the independent media here in Hong Kong. Uh, Saying the students they they are no longer protesters, but they were on a suicide mission this time, and that's really worrying because the students really are the younger generation. They are the future of Hong Kong, and that's just that's again that's something we really need to ask here. So what what has really pushed them this far? What was really behind? What's the the larger political violence that that's pushed students uh, this far? on the, the hopeful side of what's happening in Hong Kong is that young people are still able to register as voters. They are still able to elect their uh, legislators to speak for them. I think that's something we don't see maybe in previous uh, societies struggling for democracy. So the system here, that's, that's what people are fighting for now, just really safeguard this still a kind of semi-democratic system in Hong Kong.
0: Uh, you know, I noticed that the leader of Taiwan said yesterday that the movement in Hong Kong was uh, encouraging and kind of emboldening their sovereignty. Do you think there's been an international consequence to what's been happening there?
3: Yeah, definitely, definitely, for better and for worse, because for worse, it's really uh, the government should really think how this is kind of reaping the image of Hong Kong and It's not really, not even good for business here. A a lot of uh, tycoons, business owners, are moving their business uh, offshore away from Hong Kong, and uh, this is something the government should consider. But at the same time, Hong Kong is gaining the solidarity and support from the large international society, and that's something quite encouraging. And uh, yes, indeed, the leader of Taiwan, I think she's probably the only leader kind of openly claimed, uh, uh, stated her support for Hong Kong. And I think that's something. And then we see uh, kind of front pages of this Hong Kong protest uh I think "Free Hong Kong" uh, is one of the slogans used uh, I think in, in most international uh, large newspapers. I think that something also shows a kind of international support, a uh, solidarity, and and the G20 summit that just recently happened. And so the uh, the protesters also took advantage of that, and really petitioning for the international support, for the support from from world leaders, and this is just something um, that the people here, they really hope that as the world trying to have this more maybe financial connection with China, that they should also think about where they stand with regard to human rights, with with regard to democracy. And I think that's something, the this international solidarity, or international connection, this is something that we still see uh, with regard uh, to things that happen in Hong Kong. And so maybe that's one of the political sides.
0: Ting Goa is with the Department of Gender Studies and History at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Hong Kong.
3: Sure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Next week, Worldview is going to hit the road after the 4th of July. We'll be taking off to Kalamazoo, Flint, Dearborn, Toronto, and London, Ontario. In London, Ontario, we're going to be looking at Sunfest. We're going to go there. It's a world music festival in London, Ontario. And one of the acts that's there is 47 Soul. It's a Palestinian group. They're also going to be at the Old Town School of Folk Music this month. And we are going to chat with them tomorrow on Worldview and have a conversation. With 47 Soul on our Global Notes program. And hopefully, you can uh, be with us next week as we hit the road and go to London, Ontario, and Toronto, and Dearborn, and Flint, and Kalamazoo. We'll be talking about clean water issues and things that are common to all of us in the region uh, and the world. So stay tuned for that next week on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.